1: And welcome to the following on Cricket Podcast with me, John Norman. Alongside me today, a familiar voice uh, from uh, Cricket Week and also our tours of West Indies and Sri Lanka, Jarrah Kimber. uh, Alongside me for today and throughout the Ashes series as we uh, preview and review every day of the action. Uh, Today's show, though, well, a preview to the tour itself, which gets underway at Edgbaston. On Thursday, and a chance to listen back to a preview hour on kickoff with our old friend Ian Danta. Hope you enjoy it.
2: It's a cricket trophy that's only eleven centimeters tall, but it's the biggest trophy of all to fans of England and Australia. The Ashes starts tomorrow. Can England follow up on recent triumphs?
3: Cricket in this country is probably at an all-time high. It's probably got interest that it's not had for a long time. And we've got an opportunity as a team to make this summer a very memorable one. It's huge.
4: Every time you play test cricket against anyone, it's um, a real honour to be out there and, and representing a country. And, and there's no doubt the history of the Ashes takes that to another level. Oh.
5: mistakes from
3: Peterson, oh that ball is close, he's given him, he's given him, Peterson has got a hat-trick
2: on his ball day, oh what a catch, Ben Stokes, oh they're tumbling all over the place. This could be nasty, and uh, Jimmy Anderson knows it, there's a few words being exchanged between him and George Bailey. The umpires are getting involved, so it's all All gone, gone.
1: brilliant from Broad, 8 for 15, best bowling figures on this ground, oh!
2: For Mitchell Johnson. 24 years of pain in Australia.
3: Finally they're beaten at home by England. Australia have now won the Ashes series of 2017-18 4-0. I think you speak to anyone that's Captain England and is on the verge of an Ashes series. Um, to say that it doesn't mean as much as any other event, I don't think any of them would would agree. Owen Morgan lifts the trophy
4: as England are crowned cricket World Cup winners for 2019. We've got a huge opportunity to come to England, do something that, that even some of our great teams haven't managed to do in the last 20 years. And we've got some self-belief that, that we can do it.
2: We're concentrating on cricketing matters because the first test of the Ashes starts tomorrow... At Edgbaston, so let's get straight away to the finest cricket ground in these islands and chat to two gentlemen who are going to be front and centre for our coverage across the Ashes summer here on Talksport and Talksport Two. It's our cricket correspondent John Norman and his Aussie counterpart for us here, Jared Kimber. Evening, gentlemen. How are we?
1: Evening to you, Dan. We're both very well, actually. Listening to that audio package at the top of the show just—if uh, we weren't excited beforehand—it just brings it all back. A lot of the action that we heard. Uh, in the, uh, in that uh, process, myself and Jared have been alongside each other at various grounds in England and Australia over the last 10 years. And there has been a lot of Ashes cricket played in the last 10 years. Um, I suppose it's a slight strange one. I mean, I've got brilliant memories of Edgfiston hosting the first test of the summer, go back to 1997 and all that. Uh, but, of course, we've just had six weeks of high-octane, um, intense cricket with the World Cup taking place. So for an Ashes to come so soon after it, you know, the players are going to have to pick themselves up a bit like the journos and go again.
2: Well let's set the scene then if you don't mind John just let us uh, let's know what you're looking at at the moment and uh, and how the how the pitch looks and how the weather looks as we go into tomorrow.
1: Well it's a shame that the show didn't start 10 minutes earlier dance not because we could have got another 10 minutes of yourself but there was a, a choir out on the outfield. Oh. Uh, we, we you know those who uh, follow the cricket circus you get used to hearing Jerusalem played at the start of every game. Well I can uh, uh, Talksport exclusive uh, can reveal that tomorrow's Jerusalem I imagine will be uh, sung by uh, a 12-strong choir, I guess, from the local area. Uh, and you know what? It sounded beautiful. It, uh, it got the pulse racing. So that was lovely, uh, just as a little warm-up for myself. Um, but in terms of the pitch, well, it's covered as things stand. But Birmingham is also covered in beautiful late evening sunshine here the shadows and a couple of people who are out there on the field uh, lengthening and really it's it's that like, it's a quiet before the storm isn't it and it's always quiet before Jared Kimber starts speaking well I'm and amazed. That's, where, that's where we find ourselves right
2: I'm now. amazed you've kept Jared quiet for, for, for three or four minutes there John, Are you're right there Jared
5: yeah no I've been struggling I, I was <laughs> counting the choir it was definitely not 12 people in the choir that was minimum 16 I can't believe you would lie to all the listeners so early on in the broadcast
2: <laughs> Jared how excited are you by the this. You just heard John mentioned there's been a lot of Ashes cricket played over the
5: last decade. What about your thoughts? Look, there has. Uh, you know, they fit it, they fit that extra Ashes in when they had the Uber Ashes of uh, <laughs> of 2013, 2014. I think they sort of beat some of us to death with Ashes at that point. But now we're getting back to the normal Ashes, um, you know, uh, uh, system now. And I think that we're getting that excitement back. This, this is an interesting one because it is so close to the World Cup. But because both teams have such exciting bowling attacks, um, uh, although. In England's a slightly less exciting now. Joffre Archer is not playing and has such a calamitous batting um, in, in both teams. It could be an incredible series. I mean, are you, it's a bit like the 2009 Ashes in where the two teams are very, very closely together on skill. The only difference here is that, you know, you've got Pattinson and Cummins and Joffre Archer will come in and, you know, Wokes and Anderson and um, Broad, you know, and Stokes and Bairstow. There's a lot of very, very exciting players. But both teams, because they have this incredible strength and incredible weakness could end up being very, very close.
2: Well, certainly the bookmakers find it hard to split England and Australia, gents, going into this. Let me read out the England lineup that was revealed earlier today for those who may not have heard it, and then we'll get your reaction, gents. Rory Burns and Jason Roy will open the batting for England. Joe Root, the skipper, goes in at three. He's pushed himself up the order, says it's entirely his decision. That pushes Joe Denley down to four. And then Joss Butler, Ben Stokes, Johnny Bairstow, Moen Ali, Chris Wokes, who gets the nod, the Warwickshire fast bowler along with Stuart Broad and James Anderson. As you rightly say, Jared, no Joffre Archer, at least in this test, he may be being wrapped in cotton wool after the side strain he picked up. He went back to Barbados. I think, I think Joe Root was saying, um, earlier about uh, Joffre Archer. Well, let's hear from Joe Root. He actually explained to John Norman earlier exactly why it was that Joffre, after an excellent World Cup, wasn't selected.
3: Chaffer's obviously coming back from quite a serious injury. We looked at the conditions and we made a decision what we thought you now was best going to take 20 wickets here also allows him time to to get absolutely ready and fit and, and make sure that he's got his workloads up and ready to go for later on in the series if if he needs to make an impact. I think you speak to anyone that's captain England and is on the verge of an Ashes series um, to say that it doesn't mean as much as any other event. I don't think any of them would, would agree. I think it's it's huge. It's, it's a great opportunity. I think cricket in this country is probably at an all-time high. It's probably got interest that it's not had for a long time. Um, And we've got an opportunity as a team to, to make this summer a very memorable one. And that's exciting, you know, to be involved in that, to have that chance, that carrot in front of us as a team is really pleasing one. And it's very motivation, uh, a great motivator, sorry, for, for the whole squad. But ultimately it comes down to, to how we go about that, how we're going to break down Australia and how we're going to win enough games to win the series.
2: Joe Rue, the England captain speaking earlier today ahead of the first test at Edgbaston tomorrow. John Norman, our cricket correspondent, and Jared Kimber, our Aussie representative, are up at Edgbaston at the moment. Jared, let me come to you with this one because for a man who hasn't played any test match cricket, the the rise of Joffre Archer in recent weeks and months means there's almost disappointment. That he's not in the England starting lineup tomorrow. How do you process that as an Aussie from looking from the outside in?
5: Yeah, it's very interesting. I can't remember that last player, maybe since Graham Hick, who has had such a big reputation coming into the game. Uh, you know, he'd, he'd basically not played many list A games coming into the World Cup. We saw how good he was there. He has played a bit more first class cricket. So at least we know that the numbers stack up a little bit better there. But it's incredible how important a player he is um, already and, and he isn't there. But they have to wrap him up. You know, there was that running joke that he might be the first player... He might have been the first player ever against Ireland to be rested without having played a test. (laughs) But, you know, he is that... You know, he, he is a special prospect. I mean, we haven't even seen him bat yet. I promise you, Jofra Archer can bat as well. Um, I don't think he's quite on the wokes level, but he's certainly a very good uh, batsman. And he also bowls left-arm wrist spin sometimes in the nets for fun. He's one of the most incredibly talented cricketers I've ever seen in fielding, batting, bowling, uh, you know, the entire package. So you can see why people are excited by him. And I, I can tell you this for a fact. The Australians did not want to face him in this Ashes. They were hoping that he would struggle a bit in the World Cup. And that they go back to the dependable players. So him not playing the first test, I think Australia will be happy with that. I'm not sure it makes a big difference though, because if it is going to be a normal, uh, sorry, dance to say this, but a normal Birmingham grey day, um, <laughs> and it's going to swing around a bit, then, then you would think that, uh, Wokes is going to be perfectly suited to that. Obviously on his home ground as well. well.
4: The
2: thing is, uh, John, we, we talk about, we used to talk about Edgbaston being a result wicket, but everywhere in first class cricket appears to be a result wicket. These days There don't appear to be Too many drawn test matches There don't appear to be Too many flat tracks anywhere Edgbaston always seems to provide With a bit of entertainment For pace ballers So Chris Wokes On his home ground Should be a wise selection In theory
1: Well you'd think so Wouldn't you And you know Before he was was Some surprise When he was called Into the 14 man squad Joffrey Archer wasn't actually ever going to be a contender for this test match. Bizarrely though, Chris Woakes' record is actually better at Lords, which is a test match that many people were tipping Jofra Archer to come in for, and may still do so, because we've got about three weeks between now and then. So, that will be an interesting dynamic in itself. But yes, I mean, from what Jared was just saying, and, and what you're alluding to, none of us coming into this series are expecting five-day affairs, are we? We're all expecting three, uh, three or four-day test matches, The strength on both sides, certainly within the bowling, um, and there's a fragility uh, within England's top order and a fragility uh, within uh, Australia's middle order. So I think the deficiencies of both teams are going to make this a really interesting uh, contest, as are the strengths. um, And for the first time since 2001, i would say that uh, possibly, um, outside of 2005 actually, it's uh, Australia who have got the greatest spin threat um, with Nathan Lyon, you'd have to say, out bowling Moen Alley in recent times, and that itself might uh, prove to be another difference between the two sides as well.
2: So the Ashes for the men starts tomorrow at Edgbaston, and of course the Australians haven't won a series here in England since 2001. We all remember 2005, but last time they came here they were edged out 3-2 in tests, as Anderson and Broad did the business. Different captain this time around, Tim Payne is in charge of the Aussies on this tour he can't wait to get going
4: every time you play test cricket against anyone it's um a real honor to be out there and and representing your country and and there's no doubt the history of the ashes um takes that to another level so look as i said before everyone's excited um we've got a huge opportunity to come to england do something that that even some of our great teams um haven't managed to do in the last 20 years and and we've got some self-belief that that we can do it Um, So, yeah, everyone's excited and and can't wait. We're going to play competitive test match cricket like every other nation does. Um, Our guys understand what's expected of them. Um, We're role models, you know, not just for for Australian people, but all around the world. And, um, you know, there's been a quote going around our change rooms um, this week. Um, from Winston Churchill, actually, and that's that behaviour doesn't lie. So, we can talk all we like about how we're going to behave. Ultimately, you guys will see how we behave and you'll be able to judge for yourself. I don't really care about my place in the siding anymore. I'm here to do a job. I've been putting this team to, to captain and wicket keep to the best of my ability. That's all I do. And um, I've said it before, at 34 years' age, if you're looking further ahead than than the next test match, you're kidding yourself. So, um, I'm, I certainly realise how lucky I am the position that I've come from and the position that I'm now in. And um, I'm not going to waste time looking over my shoulder, man. I'm enjoying the job I'm doing and um, loving being in England, being part of an Ashes series, and um, I'm, I'm just looking to enjoy it as much as I can.
2: That's Tim Payne, the Aussie captain on the eve of the Ashes. Let's get back to Edgbaston. John Norman and Jared Kimber, our cricket correspondents, are waiting there uh, to speak to me. Jared, let's talk to you about Tim Payne. How difficult a position is he in as Aussie captain, knowing that he's had to welcome back Mrs... Uh, uh, Cameron Bancroft and Steve Smith and, and Warner to the fold after Sandpaper Gate. Is it a really impossible situation for him? Has he ridden it out quite well for you?
5: I don't think there's as much of a problem as it would appear from the outside it's not like these people you know cease to exist it, it, it would be like you having a work colleague disappear uh for a little while and coming back if, if you're already
2: sport holiday happens all the time
5: i'm sure it's never happened at talk sport but i mean maybe it's some of your your, your other freelance gigs but <laughs> you know but, but essentially you know when, when this happens these these are people that he has strong relationships with they do respect tim Payne a lot uh Will they be, you know, there will be murmurings uh, within the team, I think, if they start to lose, that perhaps Tim Payne isn't there. I know that the ex-players are already starting to say this. I, I met up with one of them a couple of weeks ago, and I, I won't say his name, but but he was basically saying, you look at this squad, and Payne might be the weakest player in it, um, which is probably true in many different ways, especially with Wade actually batting so well mm. of recent times. So, it's not a problem always. Think of Mike Brearley. He was
2: the weakest player in the England squad in 1981,
5: but what a captain. It doesn't happen very often. If you can name ten more times when the captain was the weakest player yeah. in a team uh, you know, it, it's, one, it's like the Truscothic rule of, oh he didn't make a lot of runs in first class cricket so we can pick anyone who hasn't made runs in first class cricket. Generally it doesn't work and Australia is a lot different to, to England as well. England mocked Briley even when he was beating them because they were like, you're not good enough to be in this side. There mm-hmm. is a, a feeling in Australia that usually the best batsman gets the job and obviously that's all been thrown aside. The biggest problem is that Smith is not going to get the job if Payne goes. Warner can't get the job if Payne goes. Bancroft won't get it. There aren't that many people left in the team who, who are going to get the job. Not that long ago, Stark would have been on that short list. He may not be in the team. Hazelwood is a vice-captain. He may not be in the team. It's not an obvious thing. If, if Payne doesn't make any runs and Australia lose the first two tests, there's no obvious solution um, to bring in someone else's captain. And that's part of the bigger problem that they currently have.
2: So he's strong enough as far as you're concerned to deal with any sort of, you know, noises off, if you like, if things don't go quite so well initially for the Aussies here?
5: I, I don't think that's going to be a problem, yeah. I think, you know, Payne is, um, Payne was an incredibly talented junior player who probably should have had a 15-year career for Australia, but had a, uh, basically was behind Brad Haddon and then got smashed on the hand. His hand was completely mangled. He couldn't make a run for about seven years after that, and he still got his way back into Test cricket in, in his, you know, in his early 30s and has found his way as captain. Everyone respects him. He's a very strong person. He's not, he's not a normal Australian captain, he's not very loudly spoken he, he won't say anything uh, too over the top, but he's he's a very strong cricketer and he's very respected. His problem is, is he may not be good enough to actually make runs at number 7, and also, if he does fail with the bat Matthew Wade's behind him, that makes straight away that would strengthen the Australian batting and uh, that means that Payne can't play, and as I said, that, that brings in a whole cavalcade of other problems but that's not really Payne's problem, that's kind of the, the Australian team structure's problem
2: John, the interesting thing from us looking at the Aussies from our perspective as England fans is that it looks like Payne is going to vary his pace attack as, as Jared mentioned there Stark isn't certain of his spot nor is Hazelwood Peter Siddle still knocking around as a potential Ashes bowler it looks from the noises he's been making Tim Payne that there's going to be a lot of rotation around this pace attack for Australia this summer
1: as there will be for England you know you mentioned Jofra Archer before the break Mark Wood last time out in a test match before Ireland that is you know he bowled one of the all-time fast spells for England you know you've got to go back to Devon Malcolm perhaps in the mid 90s to see uh, such a consistent barrage uh, that we saw from Mark Wood uh, in Solution that is in that third test match he touched 95 miles an hour and it's a real blow that it, we may not see him in this series England came in to this five-test series with, six te- with five tests in six weeks, by the way, knowing they had to adopt a horses-for-courses strategy. Australia have done exactly the same thing. Mm. There's no way that England are going to be bowling the same uh, bowlers throughout all five, and there's no way that Australia are. At both sides, you'd have to say, you know, have got rich stock. Australia go in with a different strategy, three fast men and a spinner. Of course, England blessed as they always are with strong rounders. It means that uh, Ben Stokes is going to be part of the side. Uh, of course, he missed the last Ashes, but there's a very familiar-looking um, team if you if, if, on both regards. Because if you look back at the last series in Australia, you know who was it who was bowling for England? Chris Wokes? tick. Stuart Broad, tick. Mm. Jimmy Anderson, tick. And who was it who was bowling for Australia? It was Pat Cummins, it was Josh Hazelwood, who may miss this test but will feature at some point, Stark as well. Um and so, yes, Siddle is a is coming back into the side. Possibly for me, a more defensive uh, minded outlook. Australia needs someone who can just dry up the runs at one end and let uh, the likes of Pattinson and Cummins and Stark, uh, if he if and when he plays, you know, really uh, run in. Um but both sides, for me, have got very strong stock and both come in with very similar outlooks. They know that their their pacemen are not going to be able to play all five, so they are going to pick them according to suitability for the pitching conditions. And that is why Australia still haven't decided between Hazelwood and Siddle.
0: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
1: truly the best place to be a cricket fan
2: uh, john let me come to you joe root made the decision and says it's his decision to move up to number three i saw your tweet from i think it was uh, a day or so ago talking in the about rearranging the debt chairs on the proverbial so now it's actually been confirmed what do you make of it
1: anything at all well we're just flipping back to where we were and uh, flipping back again from where we were a couple of years before that i i don't I don't go with this best batsman plays at three. I don't think that's ever really been the case in England. Um, if you look over the last 20, 30 years, Graham Gooch wasn't uh, at number three, nor was Alistair Cook, nor was Kevin Peterson, and the list goes on. I think number three demands a very specialist skill set in terms of mental abilities as well as technical uh, for reasons that we know, and I feel uneasy asking our best bat uh, when he doesn't want a bat at three to do that. And... In essence, I don't think it makes a great deal of it makes a great deal of difference anyway. The the reasoning behind it I was led to believe was to incorporate Roy at four, a guy that has never opened really for Surrey, um, and uh, most people feel would be much better suited coming in against uh, an older ball. The fact that Roy continues to open alongside Burns and with Denley coming in at four. Uh, You know, I I just wonder, really, what what we're doing here. England have been in this position before. I watched with aghast this time last year when Joe Root came out and explained why Olly Pope, a guy who's never batted higher than six for his county, aged 19, was batting at four. When Root wanted to play there, he was batting at three. Joss Butler was a specialist batsman at seven. England are all over the place and have been for quite a number of years. Thinking about this Callow, fragile looking batting order ahead of our show dance. And I'm thinking, well, when was the last time England went into an Ashes series with such a, a fragile looking top six?
2: When was the last time England were a hundred odd for one in a test match?
1: Um, well, actually, they were hundred for one in the last test match. <laughs> against...
2: No, 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 in an Ashes test, I'm talking about.
1: Well, the, the thing is, dance, the last time they went in with such a, a fragile looking top six was actually the last Ashes. You know, that was a way in Australia, and they went in with Stoneman opening, Vince at three, and Darwin Milan coming in at five. Mm-hmm. It didn't end particularly well. England lost that series, and whilst you can compare the, the red, relatively uh, weak Australian middle order, we know that teams are set up to win games of test cricket by the batsmen coming in at one, two, three, and four. You can save a test match. You can still win a test match uh, when you have a strong middle order. But more often than not, the runs scored in first innings by those numbers, one, two, three, and four, are the ones that put your bowlers in a position where they can bowl with scoreboard pressure. It puts the pressure back on the batting team, batting second and fourth. And Australia are going in with exactly the same top four if Bancroft plays. And I'm not saying that's a particularly strong part of their back four. But with Bancroft, Warner, Kawaja and Smith, that is the top four that they took to the field with in Australia last time out. And you've got to say that should be a huge concern for England.
2: Jared Kimber, we're doing your team talk for you here.
5: (laughs) Yeah, the one difference is, earlier you were talking about that England is quite weak at the top and Australia is quite weak in the middle. The the difference there is that... you can, you can blunt your, a bad middle order by basically making a lot of runs at the top. If you go back to the great England team, the, the, the documentary The Edge is all about the 2011 team getting to number one in the world. Their basic thinking was that they had three openers. And the idea was to get the ball 60 overs old before Peterson got in. If they got the ball 60 overs old before Peterson got in, Peterson, Bell, Pryor, we're going to smash it everywhere. That was the thinking behind that team. Australia has the opportunity to do that. The problem for England is they haven't been able to do that for a very long time. So the actual strength of England's team, this middle order of Bestow, Stokes, Butler, and Moeen coming in at eight, and Wokes even behind him, they they can't be used as a strength because they're spending most of their time putting out fires and and the truth is moving all those guys up the order doesn't help either because they don't have the skill sets that that you need to go up the order so it's a really interesting you know a, a mix of these two teams that you have I think both teams you know Australia would love to have an all rounder the quality of Wokes let alone the quality of Mo or or, or or Stokes and you know England would love to have an opening batsman like Dave Warner to come out or or a top or you know number three like Um Smith to come out so. It's a completely you know sort of different situation or different problems that the two teams have
2: five tests to come then john we start where you are at Edgbaston, which let's be fair john is a ground where england have a pretty good record against the aussies six test wins to three in ashes test matches
1: yeah absolutely i mean before 2005 i think Edgbaston was the only live test match england had won Uh, In about 20 years, you know, we made reference to it. Darren Goff steaming in alongside Devin Malcolm, Andrew Caddick, and then that huge partnership i still remember it like it was yesterday you know where i was following that test match and you know supporters of a of a football team that's maybe outside the top six or uh you know what you get supporting a team like england in the 80s and 90s was that sense of disbelief i can't believe exactly what i'm seeing as then uh of course nasser Hussein and graham thought racked up 200 in second innings and off we go we we started the series with a victory Boy, oh boy, would England take that again here. Because Edgbaston is a strong ground for them. I mean, you will not find, and Tim Payne was asked this, about how intimidating it is to play here. Now, I don't think it's intimidating, but I know that that Hollis stand, once we're getting to beer o'clock time, and you're fielding out on the outfield, and maybe it's not going your way, it is incessant noise throughout days one, two, and three, which are all sold out. The pressure is going to be ramped on Australia, not only because of that, but, of course, you've got the Sandpaper Gate, Barmy Army Air. Uh, this is one of the grounds where the Barmy Army are in good voice. And, of course, the muscle memory of this place, the experience of these players, and they only played here a couple of weeks ago in the semi-final of the World Cup. That went England's way, of course. 2017, Champions Trophy, that went the way of England. In those tight moments... That is where home advantage comes to your aid. You know the conditions, you know the pitch, you've got the fans on your on your side. England have got to start this Ashes strongly, and there can be no better ground, uh, Trent Bridge aside, in world cricket, that England would rather start an Ashes campaign than this one here in Birmingham. And yet, there is
2: no Trent Bridge Ashes test. This time, John, we've got Lords, Headingley, Old Trafford, and the Oval. Once we're done at Edgbaston,
1: well, I know if I, somebody's yeah.
2: got to miss. I mean, Edgbaston's missed out before, of course, for for big Test matches, and this is kind of a a, a, a direct result of of the, the the era we're in in English uh, cricket, where there are so many. Suitable grounds. The Rose Bowl would have a case. Chester the Streets held test matches. Somebody has got to miss out. Somebody big has got to miss out because there's always two London tests.
1: Well, you've got to ask, as an Australian, what would you prefer? Would you prefer to play at Headingley? I know you've got the scars of 81, but that was a long time ago. <laughs> or would you rather play at Trent Bridge? And I think Australia would much rather play at Headingley. Trent well, let's Bridge. ask an Aussie. Jared?
5: Yeah, well, I, I suppose. I mean, the last Ashes test was at two back uh was was one of the dullest pitches of all time wasn't it um oh, sorry not the Ashes test the Indian, oh, the India. Indian test yeah, in 2014.
1: um 2014
5: but yeah, since then uh there was uh, obviously a bit of a spicy deck at Trent Bridge. I think they've been done over a couple of times they did win in 2009 at Leeds though, didn't they so they probably do enjoy that wicket but I think in general um you know, there's a reason why Edgebaston. It's become an incredible cricket stadium over the last couple of years. The the organisation here, you know, the facilities have really taken a step up. But also, the England players think this is the home ground. Lords is not really home ground because that's for the MCC members. You know, Old Trafford is not quite what it was maybe a few years ago. And, and Baston's really taken over as the most English ground. Remember in... Two, I must have been 2015 when Australia played at Cardiff in the, the first test, Lords in the second... And they were thinking, yeah, we're okay here. We're doing quite well. They got to Edgbaston, and they were hit in the face by the crowd. They really, really affected their players. So I think for them, you know, these grounds do certainly have a different feeling.
2: So therefore, Tim Payne's comments today that he can think of 15 more intimidating grounds than Edgbaston, he's just just on the wind-up, isn't he?
1: I think if you've played in Australia, in front of Australian crowds, you're used to barracking I don't think and look I've had family members in that Holly stand and they've come away saying that's a that's it's like a football ground and this is as close to a football atmosphere as you're going to get in English cricket but Australians aren't exactly um, you know Australians are used to playing in front of predominantly working class supporters mm-hmm. you know and all of that 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 entails English cricketers are used to playing in front of middle class uh, supporters until you get to birmingham so i think there was a little bit of tongue-in-cheek from tim Payne, but similarly i'm not sure that uh the edgerton crowd when they pick up on those comments from uh from today i think they're probably going to remind him along the way over the next three four or possibly five days depending on how long this test match lasts
2: so depending on uh the weather conditions tomorrow morning when they go out to the middle for for the for the coin toss Uh, Are are you inclined to want to have a bowl? Is it going to be, I I read that it's going to be slightly overcast. I don't know what the weather conditions are likely. Is it? Is putting a, a side in at the start of the Ashes, given the strength of the two bowling attacks, probably the best thing to do?
1: I think conditions will play a part, but we can't see the pictures we're sitting here now it's uh under uh under covers but
2: but it, the look, weather the overcast, you know a bit of cloud cover, and you know what happens at birmingham john
1: yeah i'll be surprised I think it would have to be threatening to be cloudy, dark dank all day for a team to bowl first tomorrow i I'm expecting a bat first uh, decision at toss. Look, the ashes is is littered with wrong calls at the, at the toss. Ricky Ponting, Nasra Sain, and all that. But win the toss, bat first, put the pressure back on uh, the opposition. See off that first hour. You know the drill, uh, <laughs> Dance. You know you think about if you win the toss, you think about it, and then you and then you bat. From what I saw from the pitch earlier, by the way, doesn't have. The grass on it that we've seen in recent Edgbaston uh, limited overs game, internationals, it looks, it looks brown, it looks dry, it looks true. I think back first.
2: Jared, the English have no, already named their side for tomorrow. We heard it earlier. Burns, Roy, Root, Denley, Butler, Stokes, Bairstow, Moine, Wokes, Broad and Anderson. Uh, Tim Payne's decided not to name it, but then that's kind of the traditional thing to do. What would you expect him to do at Edgbaston tomorrow? Who do you expect to get the nod in that pace attack?
5: Look, the pitch is is quite brown, but I, I noticed, I think it was Tim Payne was talking about the the amount of grass that was still on it. So I think if if there's that much grass still on it, I think Siddle will get the nod ahead of Hazelwood. If it does look like a flatter, bat, more batting-friendly wicket, Hazelwood probably has more weapons. But, you know, Siddle's basically changed his um, style of bowling. I mean, his first ball in test cricket, he hit Gambier in the head, 90 miles an hour. He was a proper quick when he first started, and now he's like a low 80s um, seamer a lot of the time. So if, if the wicket is held Helping seamers, um, I would expect Siddle, but if it's helping batsmen, I think Hazelwood will, will, will get the nod. But, yeah, it, you know, it, it, Stark is still there and thereabouts as well. If it looks like a real batting-friendly one, you want the bloke who just wangs it down as quickly as possible.
2: Uh, Rory Burns, John Norman, a man who had two failures against Ireland, just 22 in seven tests as a batting average. I think the argument is that he's probably under more pressure than anybody else in that top six lineup of England.
1: Oh, mate, look, there just seems to be a sense of inevitability about this. We've been here before. You just have to insert the name, uh, Sam Robson, Keaton Jennings, Mark Stoneman, now Rory Burns. And what seems to happen is that these guys are given an opportunity at the top of the order. They start off relatively well, um, compact. Um, in, in, in command of their game we all make the right noises about where they're going but the score, the big score never really arrives Robson I think the only one out of those that actually went past 100 and then as the test matches progress 3 becomes 4, becomes 6, becomes 9 and that score still doesn't come it almost it's almost like they become suffocated by the attention by the fact that this, the microscope is so on them as they make their way to the crease fielding drills the next day and on the big screen with the likes of Mike Atherton and Nasser Hussain dissecting their recent uh, batting failure and it all becomes too much and it's almost like a self-prophesied prophecy that they're going to fail and this seems to be the case again with Rory Burns if we look back at his career to date the average doesn't stack up The runs don't stack up. Now we're talking about his idiosyncrasies with his batting stance. That wasn't being discussed in his first six test matches. He's now uh, apparently unsure about where his off stump is. There's reports he's going back to the Oval for training sessions with Michael DiVenito. We've been here before. It's not where you want to be at the start of an Ashes series. We
2: were chatting about this before. Me and the production staff and Ollie, one of our producers, was saying too many moving parts. In that batting action,
1: yeah, but look, we've again that that was something that was said about Rory Burns before he became a Test cricketer, okay? And then, as you know, because we, we covered his series, his debut in Sri Lanka, um, and then uh, then onto the West Indies. When he's scoring runs, those moving parts are still there. I'm not disagreeing with the comment, and it's and it's a fair one. Um, Owen Morgan, towards the end of his Test career, was moving around the crease in much the same way. But at the end of the day, the the actual, um, the, I suppose the the problem for Rory Burns was that he had his opportunity to get that score under his belt 80 odd just before the break at barbados and he was bold just before the break there was a couple of dismissals in sri lanka unfortunate ones and then it just seemed to be unlike alistair cook during his day or andrew strauss towards the end of his career he just kept on getting out in different ways Mm. for the first six test matches that's how it was That was his opportunity. There are very few cricketers, and I know we can point to Graham Gooch's pair on debut, but at the end of the day, if you do not stake your claim to that position in your first ten test matches, it is very, very difficult to come back and do so. And unfortunately, there's a case of here we go again with Rory Burns in terms of another misfiring England opener.
2: We see so much white ball cricket nowadays, gents. Of course, we've just had the World Cup. We've had weeks of it. Here in this country with a white ball. But of course the Aussies come here, Jared, to uh, use the red juke ball when they're used to the And We often talk about it when England go down under for an Ashes series that they find it difficult to handle the red kookaburra ball. What about the difficulties that you as Aussies have when you have a juke ball in your hand?
5: Yeah, well, we had huge problems in 2015 with that. And um, since then, the Dukes ball has been used in Sheffield Shield cricket. Uh, partly for that reason, also because they thought it was a better ball. Um, a bit of a wake-up to Kookaburra as well, who've rested on their laurels. Their balls haven't improved over the years. Um, and they're clearly not the best ball. So the Australians should be used to Dukes balls. The ones in Australia are slightly different, obviously, because they, uh, the pitches are a bit harder. Mm. Uh, but the, the, ba- the basic feel should not be weird. And that's one of the reasons that Siddle is over here, is he's a master of the Dukes ball in Australia and in England over the last couple of years. But what really changes is the way that you have to bowl. So when Australia came out in the 90s and the 2000s, they had a lot of bowlers who were very well suited to English conditions. Uh, you know, like someone like Jason Gillespie might have bowled 90 miles an hour, but he also pitched the ball quite up and, and sw- swung it a little bit. You know, uh, McGrath was a seam bowler. Damien Fleming was a swing bowler. Kasperitz was a swing bowler. They had a lot of guys like that. The, the difference over the last couple of years has been that they've had a lot more really, really out-and-out fast bowlers you like to bang the ball into the pitch. And that's not really, you know, that's not what Anderson does. That's not what Wokes does. It's not even really what Broad does. So I think that's where they've had the bigger problem. I don't think it's the ball as much in in the actual theories, but they have spent a lot of time... I I promise you, they've spent almost as much time getting ready for this Ashes as England um, spent getting ready for the World Cup. This has been... On the minds of the Australian cricketers for a long time. So, Sandpaper Gate obviously pulled a big chunk of that out of the middle, and uh, I think they'll be a little bit disappointed with the fact that Hazelwood and Stark aren't automatic starters. But they they are used to these balls now. They are used to these conditions. The fact that they had an Australian A team over here. If they've had an Australian A team over here for so long. I think James Pattinson could actually swap countries at this point <laughs> uh, and, and play with, play for the uh, England like his brother Darren Pattinson did. Yeah. Um, That's how sort of ridiculous it is that Australia have been over here that much, but that's how much they have been preparing over the last couple of years for this specific event.
2: Now, the other thing, gents, about this particular test match that kicks off the Ashes Series is it does actually start the what is known as the ICC World Test Championship between now and June 2021 there is going to be a succession of test matches which will form some sort of a a, a league where each team will play with six other opponents, three at home and three away. Are you guys thinking this is a, a, a smart idea from the ICC to bring test match cricket into a a slightly more understandable format for those who don't maybe follow cricket that closely.
5: For, from a league perspective, uh, cricket uh, Test cricket is desperate for a league. It makes it easier to sell. You can sell it as, a, as an entire package, which is essentially what is going to save Test cricket, or, or, or not save it if they can't do it. It also makes sense. You know, I mean, basically, you get uh, New Zealand get Test status in 1930. They don't. W- they win one series over the next uh, 50 years mm. and don't lose Test status, and they keep playing at the highest level. That's a re- that's not how sport works. You you should be. Good enough to qualify once then you should have to keep proving yourself at the top level so there should be some kind of promotion and relegation within test cricket uh, we've, we've seen teams over the last couple of years who who would probably beat you know uh, zimbabwe and even bangladesh at times not even get a chance so it's a ridiculous situation but this actual test league is uh it's a mess i think is the best way to put it for one they made sure that there's nine teams in it which means there's only three teams out of it which already sounds silly and then you've got, you know, because test cricket is such an unwieldy thing and they're trying to put a league on top of a, a, of a system that already works um, and, t- you know, series that are already um, there, mm. it means that it doesn't quite make sense. So, for instance, you get 120 points for each test series, but that's the same as if you play a two-test series or if you play a five-test series. So Australia could win this series 2-1 um, and uh, Bangladesh could beat uh, Sri Lanka at home in a two uh, in a two-match series and they would actually get more points from that than Australia will for winning away from home um, 2-1 against England, which is obviously the, the tougher um, series. So, basically, little things like that don't really work with it, but it's a step in the right direction and the reason that they're doing it is basically they're trying to safeguard Test cricket into the future. So, I don't want to have, you know, um, no one's had more of a go at the ICC in their life than I have, but... It, they are trying to do the right thing. It's just that trying to sit it on top of a pre-existing system doesn't work. And also, until we get it right, the TV companies aren't going to want to buy it anyway. And that's really what's going to save Test Cricket, okay. is being able to sell it as a league.
2: Probably best to ignore that then and just concentrate on the fact that it's an Ashes series and we've got five tests to come. Get some uh, predictions from you finally, gentlemen, on what you might well see over the course of the next few weeks as these five tests unfold. John Norman, I'll start with you.
1: I'm um, worried, Danced, I think this is, I think what we are set up for is the most, uh, um, uh the two teams that are so equal, they have deficiencies and strengths in different areas. Um, What I will say, though, I think this is the best chance Australia have got since 2005 Mm -hmm. to win a series here. I think what Jared just said about them coming here, four years in the making, I I think that's a problem for England because England have been concentrating on the World Cup for four years and they've now had two weeks to really get their head round and ashes. That's a problem. And there's another problem for me. And that is, in 2009, in 2013, in 2015, um, England were lucky. And Australia were unlucky. Luck only lasts so long. If Australia were lucky in 2019, Australia win the Ashes.
5: Jared? I think England should win this test, um, but I think Australia will probably win the Lord, so that'll mean 1-1 going into the last three. I think it's probably going to be a 3-2 series, but unlike uh, 2015, where Australia won the last test when it was a dead rubber, I think this could be a 3-2 series where it might even be live going into the last test, which would be incredible, considering we just had that incredible World Cup final and World Cup in in general. So I I think England are still a slightly better team. uh, uh, With their balance and everything, I still think they're better at home, but you know, it's going to be a bowlers series. As we saw, Ireland almost beat England, uh, you know, and I know it wasn't a full-strength England, but that actually shows once bowlers get on top and the conditions are favourable for bowlers, kind of anything happens, and I think that's what Australia needs, a kind of anything-happens series, but I still think England would just get home 3-2. Gentlemen,
2: enjoy the test match. I'm jealous that you're there. What you should do now, John Norman, mm. is do the, the, the right thing and take Jared Kimber down the Ladypool road in Moseley for a proper bolty. To, mate, uh, well, that's done. what you should do. To do that? Well, no, actually,
1: gonna... no, the problem is, mate, do you know what, Dance? What? Jared only eats steak. <laughs> Listen, I'm get not him, even, get I'm him not on even...
2: a Murgi Chili Baja, He's all, even... it'll be all over. All bets will be off.
1: I'm not even joking. He only <laughs> i I've, I've toured with this guy for the best fight like, 10 years. He <laughs> only eats steak.
2: Listen, Jared, do yourself a favour. You cannot go wrong down the Ladypool Roddy Mosley, I'm telling you.
1: It
5: sounds like he's making up words.
1: <laughs> it sounds like, like, like he wants to go on a date with you. <laughs> That's what it sounds. Like.
2: No, maybe not. Gentlemen, enjoy the test match. Thanks for coming on tonight.
1: Cheers. Following on, we'll return. After the day's play, the first day's play at Edgbaston, England against Australia, the two old enemies uh, reuniting for the seventh Ashes series in a decade. We've been here before, but we don't know what's about to happen. Hopefully you can join us every day of the Ashes. Myself, John Norman and Jarrah Kimber uh, will see you at the end of day's play at day one at Edgbaston.